Well, hello everyone. It's wonderful to see you. Welcome uh, to our SBT Sutra Studies class. My name is Venerable Tarpa. Before we begin class, let's just take a moment as usual to appreciate our handsome community that's gathered here today. Today I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing this present moment with others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today, I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides. A community worthy of my time and commitment. A community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated. Today, I'm thankful for this community of awakening, a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life. A family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And let's remember, as conscientious practitioners, we must recognize our responsibility to the world, to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same, to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others, to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds, transcending our shared human limitations, to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet. To maturely, well, I'm sorry, technical problem. To maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while striving to improve it. Oh, again, welcome to our SPT Sutra Studies class. We are currently examining the Dharmapada. Uh, today, we're going to be covering chapter 14 entitled The Buddha. I hope everybody enjoyed uh, this uh, teaching, uh, this chapter. I thought it was really uh, wonderful. And um, <clears throat> before we get into it, I wanted to read from the notes from Gil Franzdale. Uh, he, has a, he had a nice piece on the Buddha here that, in fact, I didn't quite know myself. Um, it says, in the early Buddhist literature, Buddha is an epithet or title mostly used to refer to Gautama Shakyamuni, uh, the, uh, the Buddha of our time, the historical Buddha. Occasionally, the early literature uses it to refer to fully enlightened disciples of the Buddha and to previous Buddhas who lived eons ago. As an epithet, the word can be translated as the awakened one. So uh, this is important. And, and so uh, what, they're, what they're talking about here is that the Buddha is a title, not a name. Uh, the Buddha Gotama Shakyamuni was his name. Buddha is a title. Um, the, the Mahayana believe that, um, that there can be many Buddhas. In fact, the Mahayana believe that we can become Buddhas ourselves. But I was surprised to see in a Theravada text that it talks about them referring to uh, enlightened uh, beings in the Buddhist time as Buddhas. I never heard that before. They're always referred to as Arhats. So anyways, I thought that was interesting. And I thought that this note uh, helps us to understand the material that's coming. So um, let's start with our first few verses here. And we have a whole bunch of readers with us. 
Uh, Yoli, would you like to start with, uh, let's do 179 and 180. Okay. Who in this world could overcome the one whose victory is unassailable? None biding his sphere of action boundless. By what path could you guide him? Where would you lead the one unmoved by the poison of desire? Not abiding his fear, by what path could you guide him? Oh, thank you. Darcy, would you like to read 179 and 180? By what track can you trace the trackless Buddha of limitless range whose victory nothing can undo? whom none of the vanquished defilements can ever push pursue. By what track can you trace the trackless Buddha of limitless range, in whom exists no longer the entangling and embroiling craving that perpetuates becoming? That's lovely. Neil, do you want to read a couple while you're doing tech support? 179, 180? Yeah. <clears throat> the Buddha's victory cannot be undone. No one in the world can approach it. By what path would you guide him? Who has no path? Whose field is endless? The Buddha has no ensnarling, embracing craving to lead him. By what path would you guide him? Who has no path? Whose field is endless? Thank you so much. So I thought the first two verses were a bit cryptic, but it, it seems to me that they're just trying to compliment the Buddha by saying, you know, that, that, that the Buddha, the state of Buddhahood is, is just untouchable for us regular people. How could anybody give guidance or suggestion to this amazing being? But I think it's just two verses that kind of honor the Buddha and set, set the chapter up for... Uh, understanding this being who is so far beyond all of us. There's a lot of material to cover. I'm gonna try not to give too much commentary on all the different verses. It's a bit of a long chapter. Yoli, would you like to read 181? Even the gods pray to those who are mindful of the perfect Buddhas, those who delight in action and quality and are constant in their meditation. Lovely. Darcy 181. Those wise ones who are devoted to meditation and who delight in the calm of renunciation, such mindful ones, supreme Buddhas, even the gods hold dear. Thank you. Uh, Darcy's audio is a little bit choppy for me. Is it my connection or what are you guys? Neil, how's it going for you? Yeah, a little bit choppy for me as well. Okay, I don't think it's a problem, Darcy. We can all read it on the screen as well. So I, I think it just comes and goes. Nothing you should worry about. Um, Neil, would you like to read 181? Even the gods envy the awakened ones, the mindful ones, the wise ones, who are intent on meditation and delight in the peace of renunciation. Oh, this is a lovely verse. So they talk about that in the scriptures that Buddhas are the highest beings in the universe, even even gods, if if you believe in such a thing, 
are beneath uh, Buddhas. Even gods are trapped in samsara. Um, so uh, here they talk about the awake one being mindful and wise. Uh, they're just, they're just uh, so happy to be meditating. But I wanted to talk about this word renunciation. So um, renunciation in uh, especially the Tibetan tradition, it has similarities to the English usage but also more than that. So uh, from my text, uh, Tibetan, uh, Tibetan Buddhist Essentials, I talk about renunciation within Buddhism as a term uh, defined as uh, definite emergence, the definite determination to be free from samsara. Therefore, within Buddhism, renunciation can be understood twofold. First, as an intention, a single resolve to escape samsara, and secondly, as a practice, a strong de-emphasizing of materialism and one's attachment to worldly concerns in order to limit distractions and temptations, thereby making life more conducive to spiritual practice. But personally, I still like the simple translation that I learned in school. Renunciation is the wish for freedom. Isn't that pretty? Renunciation is just this wish for freedom. And so that's a, a huge aspect in Buddhism. Darcy, would you like to read 182? It is difficult to obtain a human birth. It is difficult to live with the certainty of death. It is difficult to hear the Holy Dharma and the appearance of a Buddha is rarer still. Beautifully read. Yoli, would you like to read 182? Hard it is to be <clears throat> Hard it is the life of mortals. Hard it is to gain the opportunity of hearing the sublime truth and hard to encounter is, is the arising of the Buddhas. Thank you. And Neil, would you like to read 182? It is difficult to be born a human. Difficult is the life of mortals. It is difficult to hear the true dharma. Difficult is the arising of Buddhas. Thank you. And of course, they're just talking about here at, at, at how lucky and fortunate we are. They're creating a sense of appreciation. In Buddhism, to be born a human being is the greatest of all births. You would think that, we talked about the six levels of uh, the desire realm, where we have hell realm, ghost realm, animal realm, human realm, fighting God realm and God realm. And you think that, oh, the God realm would be a lovely place to be born. And if you believe in, in traditional Buddhism, uh, it's said to be, all the pleasures are there, but only human beings have the ability to achieve enlightenment. The gods, they say, are just too interested in their pleasures to do any kind of real practice. Humans have the perfect amount the perfect balance of suffering and happiness, enough suffering to make us want to get out of samsara and enough happiness so we're not mired in hopelessness. So to be born a human is a very, very precious thing. Um, uh, and life is difficult as a human being, um, but to 
come into contact with the Dharma, whether it's uh, reading books or YouTube videos or meeting a meeting a monk or a teacher is is rare in this world, right? But the arising of a Buddha is so so very rare. And uh, traditionally, they talk about multiple Buddhas throughout the countless eons. But Buddhas are kind of eons apart from one another, right? And another Buddha said in the Theravada tradition, they say another great Buddha is not going to come until these teachings have disintegrated and have disappeared, and then the new Buddhas come. Mahayana believe that the Mahayana path is the path to full Buddhahood, they call it Buddhahood, full uh, uh, awakening. So you can see they're kind of a, a bit of a snobby Buddhas. They think, well, the Theravada, you could become Arhats, but we are going to do even better. We're going to go beyond Arhats and become ourselves Buddhas. So you can you can see why that the two groups are, are quite contentious with each other, right? Because that fact alone that, you know, we have a superior path and, um, oh, I don't know what I think about any of that nonsense. Um, very good. Uh, Neil, do you want to start us off on, we have three here. Let's, I think we're going to read all three together. Neil, would you like to read 183, 184, and 185? Do not do anything harmful. Do only what is good. Discipline your own mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. The highest asceticism <laughs> is patience for bearing, the highest of all, which is passing from sorrow. Thus, teach the Buddhas, one who renounces the world but harms or oppresses others is not a practitioner of virtue. Do not scorn others to hurt them. Pledge yourself to the code of deliverance. Eat in moderation and sleep and dwell in solitude. Absorb yourself in the highest thoughts. This is the doctrine of the Buddha. Oh, that's quite beautiful. And Yoli, would you like to read 183, 184, and 185? To avoid all evil, cultivate good, and to cleanse one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Enduring patience is the highest austerity. Nibbana is supreme, say the Buddhas. He is not a true monk who harms another nor a true renunciate who oppresses others. Not despising, not harming, restraint according to the code of monastic discipline, moderation in food, dwelling in solitude, devotion to meditation. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Oh, you read that beautifully. Darcy, would you like to do 183, 184, 185? Doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful, and purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Patient endurance is the supreme austerity. The Buddhas say that nirvana is supreme. One who injures others is no renunciant. One who harms another is no contemplative. Not disparaging others, not causing injury, practicing restraint by the monastic rules. 
knowing moderation in food, dwelling in solitude, and pursuing the higher states of mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Oh, you did a great job. So 183, we've been quoting this throughout the whole Dharmapada class. So we finally get to it. And um, I always knew it as uh, do no evil, do only good, purify the mind. That's a, I remember that it's it's translated like that and engraved in um, in uh, uh, at the Deer Park in Sardnath, India. They have a walk where you walk through and you go to all the and I remember it engraved like that in a big stone. It was really pretty. Um, so um, we're talking about this austerity. So we're talking about a practice and attainment. Maybe it was a good way to explain that. Um, Patient endurance. This is a lovely term, isn't it? Do they use the do they use the same term each time? Patient forbearance. Um, here we have enduring patience, enduring patient endurance here as well. And maybe we could talk about a joyful patience as well. But um, remember that patience in Buddhism is more than just the Western sense. Usually we think about patience as just enduring, right? And where, um, you know, you're in line and you're just putting up with it. You're being patient by just breathing and putting up with it. Or someone who's telling a very long story, whatever it may be. But in Buddhism, patience is also much, much more related to non-action, non-reaction, right? It's being in a, in a place of calm, so you don't have that tension, Right, this patience, you're calm, you're peaceful in the moment. There isn't a, a, a tension. You're not in necessarily enduring the moment. You're just being non-reactive. And they talk about uh, they, the advice is to become a block of wood. When you're insulted, become a block of wood, meaning no reaction, just become an inanimate object. I'm not sure how much I like that analogy, but it, it is simple, but it does... Uh, it does convey the right idea. And then these ideas don't disparage others, don't call injury, uh, practice restraint by the monastic rule. And that's just all, any of our rules. We talked about, um, no, we haven't talked about that yet. We're talking about it uh, uh, Sunday. Uh, our vows that we all have, whether you're taking refuge vows or even if you're just following the 10 virtuous acts, you know, uh, Practice restraint by using those, you know, those should guide you. Uh, knowing, moder uh, knowing moderation in food, of course, that must be a typo. We keep finding these typos about moderation and diet. The Buddha prob probably never said such a, I'm kidding, I'm a fat man. Of course, uh, uh, we need to practice moderation. Uh, dwelling in solitude, sometimes solitude is translated a little strange. Uh, and we've had some notes on this throughout the Dharmapada. Of course, <clears throat> we think about it as somebody going out into the woods or somewhere quiet to practice. And, and I believe that that's true. But they also talk about solitude kind of inside one's mind. So that you, even in your home with your family, solitude is more having time to yourself to practice. So... Um, uh, Franzdale talks about both definitions. So I think we can kind of look at it in both ways. I wanted to share something else with everybody. And that is, um, let me call it up here. I've become a wizard at this stuff. Look at me go. 
This is a quote that I uh, that I penned ages ago, and I I I, I thought it was really inspirational to me, and I and I wrote it because when I was in the monastery, I remember the monks, some of the Western monks who were, could be quite difficult, very competitive, and I remember them thinking they were just amazing practitioners, but uh, you know their heart didn't seem to be in it. So I wrote this. It doesn't matter what level of knowledge a person may claim. If that person harbors animosity towards others, they do not know the teachings of the Buddha. Animosity is another word for ill will, right? So it doesn't matter what, what level of knowledge we may claim. If, if, you, if you have ill will for, towards others, if you are hurt or think badly of others, you just don't know the, the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha denounces any kind of animosity or ill will of any kind. This is something that we're transcending. And of course, we do our best to. At the beginning, it's, you know, you just can't turn the switch off and stop being that way. My point is that this is the path of the uh, teachings. And I just wanted to share that. I'll post that, um, I'll post that on our social media. <clears throat> after class. Um, uh, Yoli, would you like to read 186 and 187? They're together in this one verse. Not I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One second. I had it screen wrong. 186 and 187. They're separate on this one. Even a rain of gold could not satisfy your desires for the smallest taste of enjoyment leads to the suffering of more desire. A truly wise person understands this. Even the pleasure of the gods produces no real delight. The followers of the perfect Buddha know this and delight in the extinguishing of desire. Thank you, that was lovely. Neil, would you like to read 186, 187? They're together here. <clears throat> there is no satisfying central desires, even with the rain of gold coins, for central pleasures give little satisfaction to much pain. Having understood this, the wise man finds no delight even in heavenly pleasures. The disciple of the Supreme Buddha delights in the destruction of craving. Lovely. And Darcy, 186 and 187. Not even with a shower of gold coins would we find satisfaction in sensual craving. Knowing that sensual cravings are suffering, they bring little delight, or that they bring little delight. The sage does not rejoice even in divine pleasures. One who delights in the ending of craving is a disciple of the fully awakened one. Oh, thank you. And um, <clears throat> they talk about uh, sensual craving and sensual desire. Uh, it's not sexual, it's sensual. That means, you know, sweet music or beautiful food or, and again, those things in themselves aren't the problem. It's our relationship to those things. It's when we're attached to those things. I'm sure the Buddha could appreciate a beautiful song, a wonderful meal, <clears throat> but it's, it's when we're attached to those things and we suffer when we don't have them, that we really suffer. Um, for monastics, they often talk about sexual desire as 
promising great pleasures, but rewarding us in pain. So they, they often use this language. In the Tibetan tradition, they have this wonderful idea of trading candy for gold. And the idea is, you know, candy is an instant pleasure. You put it in your mouth, oh, yum, wild cherry, I'm in heaven. Um, but it doesn't compare to the long-term pleasure of somebody giving you a bar of gold or a million dollars in a suitcase, right? And so the idea for Buddhists is, um, we're not giving up the pleasures of life. We're not denying pleasure. We're simply trading fleeting, simple pleasures for greater pleasures. A great example is diet, right? Um, somebody that's a healthy person and they're conscious of it, they don't give up fast food or things like that. They're not saying it's not delicious. And they're not giving it up... Um, <clears throat> Uh, for other reasons, they're, they're giving that up for a greater pleasure, the pleasure of a long, healthy, happy life, right? This is the idea of trading candy for gold. In Buddhism, that's what we do. People often ask me that as a monastic. They, I had a scientist friend who said, I don't understand how you could, how you could renounce all the pleasures in the world. And, and I told him, oh, I've never renounced a pleasure. I've simply moved closer and closer to what I really want, freedom and liberation. Those are greater pleasures to me, right? So that's the, uh, that's the path of the Buddhas, right? I thought that was a very powerful, very important uh, set of texts. We have a bunch here. I'm not sure if we should read them all together. Let me just peek at them. I think we'll read these together. <clears throat> Yoli, would you like to start at 188 up here and read through them? 188? Yeah, the one on the screen right here. Oh, um, yeah. When beings are disturbed, they seek sanctuary in the mountains and in the forest, in holy places and in shrines and in nature. But these give no real protection. They offer no ultimate refuge. Going to these sanctuaries will not free you from suffering. Continue. You can, yeah, continue. But if you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, you will clearly understand suffering, the source of suffering, and the total passing away of suffering. Continue. Through true wisdom, you will clearly see the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path, which lead to the release of misery. One more. These are the true refuge. These are the ultimate refuge. By going to these for refuge, you will be free from all suffering. Oh, that was lovely. <clears throat> Darcy, would you like to do the same? Read through quite a few of them, starting at 188. Sure. Driven only by fear, do men go for refuge to many places, to hills, woods, groves, trees, and shrines. Such indeed is no safe refuge. Such is not the refuge supreme. Not by resorting to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. He who has gone for refuge to the Buddha, the teaching, and his order penetrates with transcendental wisdom the Four Noble Truths. Suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the Noble Eightfold Path leading to the cessation of suffering. 
This indeed is the safe refuge. This is the refuge supreme. Having gone to such a refuge, one is released from all suffering. Thank you. Neil, would you like to read some? Starting here at 188 and 189. It's on two pages. We'll start up here. People threatened by fear may go to many refuges, to the mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines. None of these is a secure refuge. None is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. But when someone going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha sees with right insight the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering and the Eightfold Path leading to the end of suffering, then this is the secure refuge. This is the supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. Thank you. <clears throat> that was excellent. And so, um, let me find one that I think seemed to give you the first one. So uh, we uh, here they're talking about um, <clears throat> when beings are frightened, they go for refuge. Uh, how? What kind of refuges refuges can we think of? So people go to the forest for refuge, or they talk about shrines. Can anybody think of any other things when we're when we're frightened, when we're scared, when we're anxious, when we're unhappy, when we're suffering? What are some other refuges? I can't see you, so just go ahead and say. Your family, maybe? Family? Yeah, thank you. Any others? My refuge is meditation. Ah, that's a good one. You read ahead in class, I think. <laughs> Anyone else? <clears throat> um, drugs and alcohol. Yep. Can I say one? Food. <laughs> Anybody else? I got a whole bunch if you don't have any. How about entertainment? Movies, video games, books. Shopping. Yeah, books are good. Yeah. Books, shopping, religion? Bed. Say again, David? Bed. Bed or oh, bed, yeah, yeah, very yeah. good, yeah. <laughs> Netflix. And our own, our own space, Netflix, our own space, like our own homes, or if you live with people, your room. You know, sometimes work, right? Sometimes we take, sometimes we bury ourselves in our work so we don't have to think about other things. My point is, there's a lot of refuges, and in a sense, you can... You can kind of see your life, if you look deeply enough, as just about all the things we do, they're all kind of refuges, aren't they? You know, all the things we do, we're always trying to find something that'll preoccupy us so we don't have to think about our problems. Refuge could be being with friends so you don't have to think about the future or problems you have. You know, 
Any kind of a distraction can be a refuge, right? So, nevertheless, uh, I wanted to make that point. There are so many refuges, but as you can imagine, a lot of them aren't very good refuges. Most of them don't offer real protection, you know, um, hiding in bed or going into your room or something. It's not really going to benefit your life. Neil, if people aren't chatting, can you mute people? It stops a lot of the secondary noise. Thank you. And then people can unmute when they want to share. Um, and then like you talked about drugs and alcohol, there's some dangerous refuges as well. So, um, so there's a whole bunch of refuges to choose from. In this case, they're saying that, you know, when you really explore the Dharma, and of course, that's why we're all here, because all of us have decided that, that Buddhism is a really good refuge. That's one of the reasons everyone took refuge vows and a great explanation of what refuge is. And tomorrow we have seven more members uh, taking refuge. So it's very exciting. And, um, but uh, the, uh, the Dharma is a great refuge. Uh, Gil Fransdale had another note from a previous uh, text that I wanted to read. Uh, for many Buddhists, these three verses, and he's talking about the next three, um, refer to the central elements of their faith of Buddhism, the triple refuge of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, which we call the three, the three jewels. Um, this is the main focus of inspiration and reverence, the three jewels. Um, the Four Noble Truths are the essential orientation or framework used to find and engage in the path of liberation. The Eightfold Path, which is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, describes the practice that make up the path to, to be walked, namely right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. For anybody that uh, likes the, what I just read, I'm not supplying a meme, but you can go back to this recording uh, and, and learn about it some more. So that's, uh, I thought that that would be poignant at, that, at this point. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, I don't know if you've answered this question before, but um, my curiosity is when you talk about um, drugs, I'm thinking about marijuana now that it's prevalent and often used for um, healing and pain and this sort of thing. What is the position with that? Oh, it's very easy. Wisdom comes in. <clears throat> if something can be used to, to um, you know, I was going to say to reduce suffering, but maybe that's not a good example because maybe a lot of people that do drugs do so to reduce their mental suffering. But nevertheless, uh, intoxicants, the Buddha thought, uh, didn't help us uh, uh, reach our spiritual aims. He thought that they they got in the way of our spiritual aims. So the Buddha didn't wasn't a fan of intoxicants of any kind. With that said, uh, especially with marijuana, if there are situations where uh, you're using it for some kind of a medical treatment, that's completely different, right? Uh, but but also even if you're using it for medical treatment. 
it still might not be the greatest for your practice. Opiates would be another uh, example. If, you, uh, if you've broken something and you really need some opiates to get through, that's great. But you're going to find that your practice isn't so great as long as you're on those. So the idea is to get healthy and possibly get off of them if you can. So, but medicines are, are always medicine. They're always a positive thing. But to be stuck on medicine for our whole lives and it clouds our mind, that can be a problematic for practice. Each one of us has to decide that for ourselves. And of course, marijuana is one of the mildest of all of the intoxicants. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Uh, Yoli, would, uh, Yoli, while you're on, would you like to read... Uh, the next two, 193 and 194. The truly wise are hard to find. They are not born just anywhere. Truly happy are the families in which such steadfast ones are born. Joyful is the arising of the Buddha. Joyful the teaching of the Holy Dharma. Joyful the harmony of the Sangha. And joyful the practice of those who live in harmony. Thank you. Neil, would you like to read 192 and 193? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, one, 193 or 194? Hard to find is for thoroughbred man, the Buddha. He is not born everywhere. Where such a wise man is born, that clan thrives happily. Thank you. And 194. Blessed is the birth of the Buddhas. Blessed is the... Enunciation. Enunciation of the sacred teaching. Blessed is the harmony in the order. And blessed is the spiritual pursuit of a united truth seeker. Enunciation is an old, old style word, so that means to speak it. Yeah. And uh, Darcy, which ones are we on these last two? Oh, no, we're way up here somewhere. Here we are, 193, 194. Okay. It's hard to find a noble person. Such a person is not born everywhere. When such a wise one is born, the family flourishes in happiness. Happy is the arising of Buddhas. Happy is the teaching of the true Dharma. Happy is the harmony of the Sangha. Happy is the ardent practice of those in harmony. Oh, thank you. I thought it was interesting, 193. The first, uh, the first text talks about Buddhas, and here they're talking about noble people. And a noble person is someone on the path, someone who has some realization of the Buddha's teachings and the nature of reality. That's a noble person. A bodhisattva clearly is that. And here they're, they're uh, uh, well, they're talking about how precious noble people are and um, how their families flourish. Boy, you talk to my family. <laughs> they don't seem to be so happy about me all the time. I think that comes and goes. Uh, 194, uh, happy is the arising of a Buddha, of the teachings of the true Buddha, of the harmony of the Sangha, and the practice of the Buddha's teachings. Um, I thought it was interesting in each, in each text, the first one talks about joyfulness. 
uses the word joyful. The second one, um, they talk about, oh, it's here. They talk about being blessed. And the last one, they talk about being happy. But I like the first one. I like the that he translated as joyful. And I think that the idea of joy is found much more in the early sutras, and I think it's more accurate. And for some reason, the word is used less and less as Buddhism progresses through the ages. But uh, of course, in SBT, that's a word that's near and dear to our hearts. What I experience from the Buddhist teaching, that's the only word that ever that ever uh, encapsulates my experience is, is joy. So uh, I thought that was lovely. Okay, let's go back here. I think we have two more to read. Um, <clears throat> Darcy, would you like to read 195 or 196? The perfect Buddha has completely passed beyond all ego activity. He has completely extinguished suffering and desire. And so he is worthy of worship, even if even his followers are worthy of worship. No one at all can measure the merit of worshiping the fearless ones, those free from sorrow. Oh, that's lovely. And Yoli, would you like to read the last one? It's in one paragraph here. He who reveres those worthy of reverence, the Buddhas and their disciples, who have transcended all obstacles, and pass beyond the reach of sorrow and lamentation. He who reveres such peaceful and fearless ones, his merit none can compute by any measure. <laughs> well, that's powerful, isn't it? Wow. I hate to try to live up to that. And Neil, would you like to read the last one? The merit of worshiping those worthy of worship, be they Buddhas or disciples, who have transcended their obsessive thinking, passed beyond sorrow and grief, gone to peace, and who have nothing to fear, can never be calculated by any estimation. Wow, that's a lot to live up to. Um, I think it's interesting here. The um, In um, Tibetan, the word for monk, which was a Buddhist disciple, is gelong. And gelong... Uh, actually, uh, actually means one worthy of veneration. So that whole idea of veneration, of uh, these noble people are worth venerating. Um, so um, here, one of the interesting terms is, who have transcended their obsessive thinking. You don't hear that very much, but isn't that exactly what we all know to be true? that that's why we're practicing calm abiding meditation right that one of the greatest problems we all have is the thinking process this obsessive obsessive thinking you know thoughts not the problem it's that thinking obsessive endless thinking and i love it when uh, we find some sutras that actually talk about it so yeah passing beyond sorrow and grief gone to peace and who have nothing to fear, isn't that a lovely idea? Can never be calculated. There was a couple other, I like I liked the, uh, the adverbs and adjectives. Um, completely passed beyond ego activity. I have never seen that uh, written before. That's a, a nice term, huh? Egoic activities. 
me, right? Self-cherishing and completely extinguish suffering and desire worthy of, uh, worthy of our worship. Um, can measure the merits of worshiping the fearless ones. Those free. So, uh, yeah, so I guess all of us practitioners were like good luck charms, huh? Everybody, everybody that appreciates the work we do, they get great merit from it. Um, and let me just look at this last one. Reveres those who have reverence. I like, I like the word reverence better than worship. That was a difficult term for me. We always say that Buddhists don't worship, right? Um, transcend the obstacles and pass beyond the reach of samsara and lamination. And I was surprised Yuli got that right, right off the bat. She's amazing. Um, so lamination is a cry of sorrow or grief. The passion and discriminative activity of expressing grief. That was a word that I didn't know. I have a little dictionary program here. Um, <laughs> because I don't know all the big words. Uh, oh, I just thought that was lovely, right? So that, that that's a great, uh, great one to cap off that chapter with. So um, <clears throat> before I move on to the closing, does anybody have any comments, ideas, thoughts? What do you guys think of? Did you enjoy it? My conclusion is waiting, but I just wanted to see if anybody... Oh, Gochun's here. Hello, my dear. Oh, it's so nice to see you. I miss you. I miss Turkey. <clears throat> Were there any questions about any of them? Any comments about them? Darcy? I like how you compared it, compared um, the um, practitioners like good luck charms. <laughs> families well especially especially when you're a monk right people want you to touch them uh when i was in india people would come up give me your blessing and they bow way down touch your feet and i'm supposed to lay my hands on them heal thee or something you know and of course i'm a secular buddhist i don't believe that that's possible i can inspire people you know when you talk about the word blessing I, I understand that is inspiring. When I meet the Dalai Lama in person, I mean, I did get a blessing, I, but, but it was inspiration to, to see how he moved, to see how he talked, you know. It gave me great clarity in my direction. And to, to, you know, after I met him, boy, I practiced like crazy. I was so inspired, right? So to me, inspiration is the great blessing. But I don't, I don't think I could do anything more than that. But the scriptures beg to differ. They think that we can just hand that out and, and give such greatness to others. It's incalculable. <laughs> Tell that to your family. Oh, by the way, at dinner time. Oh, by the way, everyone, any kind of devotion you show to me will bring you incalculable goodness. <laughs> so if you want to wash the dishes or rub my feet, You'll be blessed for countless eons. <laughs> so uh, I was, I was um, found worship problematic, obviously. Um, so what? What you, you mentioned reverence as well. What would you, what word would you use um, for it? And I was wondering whether you regarded the way you felt about the Dalai Lama. 
would fit into that um, the, 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 that kind of category. Yeah, I think maybe I would cite on words like appreciation, respect, you know. Uh, think about a, a great teacher in university who really helped you and, you know, you know, the word reverence works for that. You know, reverence is a bit of a religious term, but not necessarily. You can revere, you can revere historical figures, right? So you can revere family members that did great things. But um, I think I would just bring it down to just a simple, you know, great appreciation. Veneration's another thing. You know, veneration is the, that's quite religious too. And, you know, my title, Venerable Tarpa, it comes from the translation of that word, Gelong, in Tibet. In all the languages, they have that, one worthy of veneration. And now you see where it comes from. Um, I use it not because I want people to venerate me, uh, but I use it just because uh, it's the only term we have for a fully ordained monk. We don't have PhD or doctor or the only... So if I write Tenzin Tarpa on a book, People have no idea if that's just some Tibetan person or anybody. It could be anyone in the world with a Tibetan name. But when you put down venerable, then people know it's a fully ordained uh, monastic. And hopefully it gives them confidence in what was written. Thanks. Yeah. Good question, Dave. Would anybody else like to comment? Did you enjoy the chapter? I thought it was awesome, huh? I've been waiting for a chapter like this from the very beginning. So hopefully we'll, they'll keep going. This one was yummy. Lots of, lots of great stuff to dig into. Look at all those hearts all over the place. I must have did pretty good, Neil. Okay, let's wrap this up. I'm going to do a little conclusion for you. And always I say that the conclusion is simply uh, silly old me. Just try, I go through the, the, I go through the various verses and I just try to maybe put it in different language or that somehow maybe it'll bring a little bit more clarity to it. Um, uh, so anyways, I wanted to start with the qualities of the Buddha. So throughout all of these verses, I picked out all the adjectives and I wanted to kind of put them together to paint a picture of what this chapter paints of the Buddha. So uh, the Buddhas are non-abiding untraceable, actions boundless, unmoved by desire, whose attainments cannot be undone and whose afflictions can never return. Wow, that's a good one. Completely free of craving of becoming. That's, that's rebirth, right? The, the, the craving to be reborn again, they're free of it. Those wise ones who delight in actionless tranquility, content in their own meditation, who are, who are delighted in the calmness of renunciation, who even the gods are envious of, completely beyond egoic activity, completely extinguishing suffering and desire, one who is truly worthy of venerating, of veneration that gains the highest merit. Boy, that's quite something to live up to, huh? Um, it's rare to, to be, uh, it's rare to begin to awaken. For a lot of us, even before you were Buddhists, my thought is that a lot of you sought out Buddhism because you were already awakening. I think uh, a lot of people, I think becoming self-aware is the first 
aspect of awakening. And as you know, you don't have to be a Buddhist to become self-aware. So a lot of us uh, are, start awakening at around that same age, you know, in their early 20s. So to begin to awakening is very rare. Um, it's rare to find the Buddha Dharma. And so very rare to actually meet a teacher, strong practitioners, or a Buddha. The highest austerity is enduring patience. And um, I would say again is, uh, is non-reactivity. I would, I would say that that's a joyful non-reactivity. <clears throat> Regardless of how you regard yourself and your attainments, if you harbor ill will towards others, you are not a practitioner of the Buddha Dharma. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm not coughing anymore, but I still have a lot of stuff. Um, live by the Buddha's training. Pursue the highest states of mind. Eat moderately and practice contentment in peaceful places. The wise understand that desiring can become a dangerous habit. So instead, cultivate and delight in the pleasure that arises from non-attachment desire and to things. People seek refuge in many ways, but only the Dharma will truly free us from suffering. The three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, are a true refuge because they clearly understand suffering, its causes, its elimination, and the method for liberation. In the early sutras, the Buddhas again use the magical word joyful to describe the arising of a Buddha, their teachings, the Sangha, and the practice of its members. Um, I would like to remind everybody that the sutra teachings are meant as practice instructions. So in order to get the greatest benefit, we need to engage with them fully, utilizing the three great objectives of study, contemplation, and meditation. Your work this week is to discover how these teachings apply to your daily life transforming them from words on a page into living dharma. Next week, we'll be moving on to chapter 15 of the Dharmapada, happiness. Now, you know what I thought was so strange is that <clears throat> next week's class on happiness corresponds with our class on happiness, which starts tomorrow. So isn't that wild that we're going to have two classes on happiness going on at the same time. And with that said, let's end today's class with our altruistic affirmation. May all be healthy, may all be prosperous, may all be well, may all be present, free of past regret and future worry. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize their true nature and the true nature of reality, which is awakening. And please, everyone, remember that SBT was created for one purpose and one purpose only, to support you, the practitioner. Please let us know if there's anything we can do to help you on your path to awakening. Thanks for joining me, everybody. So uh, uh, lastly, tomorrow's the big day. We, got a, uh, we have our, uh, our day of uh, observance and our retreats. Uh, 
we're using UTC time on the new schedule. I think I laid out everything on social media wonderfully. I hope you can all make it. We have a blast on our retreats. It's an amazing way to further your, your, pro, your progress. Um, the Skillful Living class is going to be at a different time tomorrow because of our retreat. <clears throat> Remember, normally we give two Skillful Living classes during the day, one for Europe and one for, an Ameri for America. In order to bring our whole Sangha together in one day, we have to change times. So the daily meditation and the Skillful Living class are at different times they're all posted on your on social media. Let me know if you have any trouble with all that, okay? So we'll see everybody then. Wonderful being with you all. Thanks. Thank you. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's.